Hello and welcome to Overdrive, a program where we wander through the world of motoring and transport. I'm David Brown, and in this program we have news stories, including a great feature from Hyundai in their Santa Fe. Citroen doesn't give up hope, they're about to launch a new C4. And the Cupra Born, silly name, for a new electric vehicle. And in our feature interview, Christine Mulverhill, a research fellow at Monash University, has just presented a research paper to the Australian Road Safety Conference on the effectiveness, or otherwise, of in-vehicle warning systems. We chat to her about the results. Paul Morell is about to drive the new Aston Martin DBX. He goes through his preparation. And Brian Smith and I look at the impacts of COVID on transport, including the insufferable impact on road testers. There's not nearly as many people out there to drive past and see their reaction to a new vehicle. You can always find more information at drivenmedia.com.au, including longer interviews or previous programs are available as podcasts on Spotify or iTunes. There's our Facebook page, Overdrive City Driven Media, or our YouTube site, Overdrive City. But for this program, let's get started with the news. Hyundai's latest upgrade of their large SUV, the Santa Fe, abounds with more comfort and safety features, more efficient drivetrains, bigger screens and a few touches in styling. But the feature on the the top-of-the-range Highlander model that we found most interesting was the blind spot view monitor. If you turn on the left indicator, the left dial in front of the driver becomes a video coverage of the left blind spot and similarly the right dial for the right-hand turn or lane change. Honda has had a similar feature for just left turns using the centre infotainment screen. The benefits seem obvious and the system is also in the Hyundai Palisade and some Genesis models, but you still need mirrors as the video images do not work unless you turn on the indicator, nor if you are parking without the ignition on. But it is a step in the right direction. Citroen have a small range of competent and somewhat distinctive looking vehicles in a good way. It's just that they're not selling in Australia. For the eight months this year, up to the end of August, they have sold just 88 vehicles, while Toyota has sold over 156,000, which is around 88 vehicles every business hour, including Saturdays. Citroen has sold less vehicles this year than Bentley or Ferrari or Lamborghini in Australia. We think they deserve better. At least they are ahead of Rolls-Royce in sales numbers, but not turnover. But they haven't given up. They are launching a new version of their small SUV, the C4, in November. They say it is a reinvented hatchback design, combining SUV posture and attitude with saloon versatility. Their sales pitch is that they are offering driver comfort, living comfort, comfort of the mind and comfort of use. There's no indication yet of prices. The latest Hyundai i30 sedan has stunning looks. It's a different body to the i30 hatch. We have just been driving the N-Line with a 1.6 litre turbo engine. Bill Thomas, who is the General Manager of Marketing and PR at Hyundai, and was previously the editor of Wheels magazine, gives some background and some feeling to the vehicle. 
the official term for the design language is sensuous sportiness, which is a <laughs> bit of a mouthful, but you know how designers like to, to talk, that, talk that way. And the guy who oversaw the design um, of this particular car is a guy called Luke Donkervolker, quite an interesting surname, a Belgian designer. But if you look him up, um, he was responsible for the Lamborghini Murcielago, uh, the Lamborghini Gallardo and Bentley Continental GT. So he's some designer and he oversaw the look of this car. And if, if you look carefully, you can see that sort of design elegance, the uh, Lamborghini cues in some of the lines and, and also a little bit of a, a hint of Bentley here and there. It's, it's quite interesting. And I think we've, um, we've come a long way with design since Luke took over the global design chief role. Um, yes, you're right. It is, it's a very striking looking car, but it has a certain elegance to it as well. Recently, Volkswagen launched a new brand on the Australian market, the Cupra, with a focus on sporty performance. As electric vehicles typically have phenomenal acceleration, not surprisingly, Cupra has now announced that they will put their first 100% electric vehicle into production, the Cupra Born, as in a baby is born. The vehicle has just appeared in Automobile Barcelona 2021, which marks the start of the model's international launch plan. It will be produced in Volkswagen's Zwickau plant in Germany, their first plant for EVs and said to be the largest electric vehicle plant in Europe. It has a daily output of 1,400 vehicles, around 330,000 electric cars a year. In addition to the Cupra Born, four other models, Volkswagen's ID3 and ID4, the Audi Q4 e-tron and Sportsback e-tron, will be produced at the plant. There are many opinions about driver distraction, but there's not been an extensive research history on the effectiveness of in-vehicle warnings to drivers. Christine Mulverhill, a research fellow from Monash University, has just delivered a paper to the Australasian Road Safety Conference on driver distraction from human-machine interface warning systems. The research was supported by Finimores and Volvo. Christine describes what they did. We put the drivers in a purpose-built truck driving simulator and we had them drive for probably about 20 minutes and during that 20-minute drive we interspersed Um, we got them to engage in some distracting activities, which was typically a text messaging task. And then we would issue the warning and then we'd issue the second level warning because our system had two levels of warning. And then we got the driver to pull the truck over and we interviewed them. We got them to fill in a series of scales to rate the effectiveness of the warnings. And we got them to just give us some feedback about that. And we did that about five times for, for the different variations of the warnings that we tested. And this has been the news. This is the full interview from a segment from the Overdrive radio and podcast program. For more information, go to drivenmedia.com.au. Modern road safety systems are showcasing what is technically possible in warning drivers or in dangerous situations, possibly intervening. But as we reported the other day on some research from MIT, there can be a big difference between what is technically possible which dictates how we want people to respond versus how people respond in real-life situations. We caught up with Christine Mulverhill, who, with a background in psychology, now a research fellow at Monash University's Accident Research Centre, 
is about to deliver a paper to the Australasian Road Safety Conference, a major conference held every year. The title of her work is a First Stage Evaluation of a Prototype Driver Distraction Human Machine Interface Warning System. Sounds complicated, but it is incredibly practical. Good day, Christine. Hi, David. How are you going? Very well, thank you. You concentrated on heavy vehicle drivers, didn't you? Yes, we did. We looked at heavy vehicle drivers, but we also did look at car drivers too. So you focused on heavy vehicles. What is their percentage in the market on the road and and also including how far they travel? Well, heavy vehicles are involved in around 16% of all fatal crashes on our roads in Australia. And yet they're only accounting for around about 2.5% of vehicle registrations and about 7% of the distance vehicle kilometres travelled. The technology, how can it help? Are we talking about it just being there as a bit of a, a nice extra little thing or can it be a very fundamental part of the road safety? Initially, it's designed to help the driver. We don't want to remove the primary prevention techniques, which are the driver being sensible enough, for example, Mm. to try not to be distracted, put the phone away to turn it off and to take regular rest breaks because we can become more distracted when we're tired. But the technology is certainly there to warn the driver. And if it's another layer of something we can do to prevent crashes then we're all for it. You don't want to get a complacency to think that the system will save you in every situation. It certainly won't save you no it's designed to help the driver Hmm. rather than actually do the work for them so we can't have drivers thinking that oh look now I can become more distracted or, or now I can just drive when I'm tired. It won't prevent you from being distracted or tired it will just give you a warning when you reach that state. We all have our theories about what other drivers should do Did you interact, engage with truck drivers once, twice or a bit? Uh, We engage with them quite frequently, around about four times throughout the two-year project. So we met with them for several interviews where we just had initial discussions about what they thought would be helpful to them as part of their driving. And then we got more down to the fine-grained details where we combined their input with the research and then eventually that culminated in an actual test in the driving simulator where we had a purpose-built truck and put the drivers in the truck, had them distracted and asked for them to give us feedback on what they thought about the technology. Your background in psychology, would you have been able to have this position 10, 20 years ago? Is it a movement in the road safety of, as you said earlier, about understanding people? That's Your psychology is a good background to that? Yes, certainly. I think we've, I think it's been around for a while, but I don't think it's been put into play as much as we would like. And, and an example of that is when we sat down to design our system, we actually didn't really have a lot of research to go on. We, we know these systems are out there, but it wasn't a lot of research that had engaged the driver or at least made that public for us to say, hey, this works or hey, this doesn't work. So, That's really important to get the user's perspective on these systems. Take me through what you did in the simulator. Ah, so we put the drivers in a purpose-built truck driving simulator and we had them drive for probably about 20 minutes and during that 20-minute drive we interspersed some... We got them to engage in some distracting activities which was typically a text messaging task and then we would issue the warning and then we'd issue the second level warning because our system had two levels of warning And then we got the driver to pull the truck over and we interviewed them. We got them to fill in a series of scales to rate the effectiveness of the warnings and we got them to just give us some feedback about that. And we did that about 
five times for, for the different variations of the warnings that we tested. What sort of distractions, um, what sort of warnings were they given? What were the circumstances or the dangers or the situation they had to be aware of? So in our study, it was, it was a little bit artificial in the sense that we, we had them engage in a text messaging task. We asked them to engage in it. So the system wasn't hooked up in real time. We actually just really wanted to get their feedback on the, the warning itself. So we, by putting them in the truck simulator, we were just immersing them in the type of situation that they would be in. So they didn't have their other regular warning devices that they might have in their truck. So it's a little bit artificial, which is why we call it our first stage evaluation and we would hope to do further tests on the real road after this. But you did say you got the driver to pull over. I love I love that expression because that <laughs> continues the effort at making it a reality, doesn't it? It certainly does, exactly. We wouldn't want to be portraying the wrong message here, would we? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, stop in the middle of the road. And yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> now, you talked about how different drivers react. One of the things that came out of the MIT research was the possibility of a system giving feedback and even adapting to the individual driver rather than necessarily building a one-off warning system with artificial intelligence and with cameras being able to detect a fair bit about the driver and that do you do you think that's an area we might move to the individuality of the warning systems I think it could be it's not something I know a great deal about but in a lot of the papers I've read for this work it certainly mentioned what they call individual differences and that is that drivers are not all the same so uh, they won't always respond the same way if they're fatigued or distracted so the real trick with the device was being able to cover the range of different responses that a driver could exhibit that would indicate that they were in some form of some type of impaired state. Truck drivers have talked about that a lot haven't they they actually have to drive different trucks and that is actually quite a barrier of learning the new truck, which you would prefer them to do while they're sitting waiting rather than necessarily while they're driving down the highway. Yes, that's definitely true. Consistency is a big one. But you also want to hope that the systems are sort of, I guess, user-friendly enough that the driver won't have to, I guess, in a sense, train to use them. You want a warning, too, that is consistent there's nothing worse than driving down a road and having to slow to 40k because of workmen, but there's no one there. In the same way, you don't want a warning that comes up that appears to be rather uh, superficial. Oh, I was just going to say, is that when you were talking then, I was thinking like a warning that's issued when it doesn't need to be. Christine, lovely to talk to you. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much, David. It's a pleasure. And that is Christine Mulverhill, who is a research scientist with the Monash University's Accident Research Centre, a research fellow, and is doing some great work in that regard of the driver-human-machine interface and the warning systems that we can do with that. Very important work. And you can hear the full interview if you go to our website at drivenmedia.com.au. This is Overdrive across Australia. In early 2018, Toyota moved its Hilux range up market with the introduction of the Rogue and the Rugged X. Now with 150 kilowatts and 500 newton metres, the 2020 upgraded Rugged X boasts 3.5 tonne towing capacity, revised suspension and power steering, as well as a recalibrated 6-speed auto transmission, all of which are welcome improvements. 
Comfort features include leather-heated front seats, larger 8-inch centre screen display, Apple CarPlay and Android Auto, and a premium JBL 9-speaker sound system. Specific Rugged X additions include special redesigned grille, heavy-duty front springs, snorkel with a reversible head, red-painted front and rear recovery points, heavy-duty rock rails, recreational sports bar, moulded tub tray with tailgate protection, and a heavy-duty rear bumper with integrated step, all of which are fully engineered into the core vehicle and covered by the standard factory warranty. Fully equipped for off-road adventures straight out of the showroom, the Rugged X is priced from $69,990 plus the usual costs. I'm Rob Fraser. This is Overdrive across Australia. Well, our good friend Paul Morell, a motoring journalist, is out and about on the weekend in a special car, one that we really ought to talk to. G'day, Paul. G'day, David. How are you? Very well. What's the car you will be driving this weekend? With a great deal of trepidation, I'll be driving the new Aston Martin DBX. Is this part of the international launch of the new James Bond movie that they've roped you into? No, but every time anyone mentions Aston Martin, we get a James Bond reference. I'm really, really utterly over it, I must be honest. <laughs> What's so special about the DBX? Well, it's like most luxury car manufacturers, Aston Martin has gone down the route of a large SUV. So what we've got now is not what you and I would think of as a traditional Aston Martin and certainly not what James Bond would want to drive. It is a big, heavy SUV. Does it look elegant in any way? Um, it looks elegant in the way that some BMW SUVs look. It's it's sort of, it has a coupe look to it. It has a couple of good Aston Martin uh, characteristics, of course, because they will never let those go. Um, look, it's it's quite an elegant thing. Uh, until I drive it, though, I'm not too sure how big it is. Hopefully, because it's an Aston Martin, it will still drive like, well, not like an SUV, more like an Aston Martin. But that remains to be seen. Driving an Aston Martin SUV, where will you take it to enjoy it or perhaps even to show it off? <laughs> I scared the living daylights out of the people at Aston Martin when I said I need it for the weekend so I can take it up to the Collin Grove Hill Crime here in South Australia. Uh, and there was a deathly silence on the other end of the phone until I said, no, no, I won't be driving it up the hill climb. I'm taking it there to watch other people driving up the hill climb. Uh, that's uh, wonderfully, I won't use the word pretentious, but certainly to turn up to a hill climb motorsport event in an Aston has a certain degree of elegance about it. It also has a certain degree of uh, relevance because Aston Martin, in fact, was named after a hill climb. Seriously? They were competing in a hill climb at the UK and did quite well. And then they incorporated the name of that hill climb, which from memory was Aston, into the name of the car company. Well, you know, of course, what the DB stands for. Yes, I do. David Brown. Do you think it has much cachet here in Australia? Oh, it certainly does. I have to say every time, every time, you know, the company deigns to lend me the keys and I get to drive one. Cameras flash and people wave and it's not me they're photographing, it's definitely the car. <laughs> so yes, people do recognise it and they, they appreciate the, the heritage to some extent, but also the quality of the, of the brand really. The DB5, forget the James Bond bit, just the DB5, is that not a beautiful sports car? Oh it is, it is. I mean it's the one that those of us of a certain age all remember. Uh, but I 
you know, Aston Martin have been very clever with their designs. The DB, the DB7, the DB9. I mean, they're they're still they're still quite stunning looking motor cars. But you're right, the DB5 was in many ways the definitive car. I couldn't afford one then, and I can afford one even less now. <laughs> I will, of course, request a review of the Aston after you've driven it. The reason I'm driving it with trepidation is because it's just worth so much money. I mean, it's a three hundred and fifty three hundred sixty thousand dollar car uh, which probably is not hugely expensive you know when you look at things like the lamborghini urus or the bentley ventega it's in that sort of area and i guess if you're spending those sort of numbers a couple of thousand dollars here or there what's the difference it really just scares the living daylights out of me with the insurance cover i have to take out i would be fearful of even scraping the rims oh no that's that's the worst thing i could possibly do <laughs> That'll put me in debt forever. I mean, they're twenty-two inch, twenty-two inch wheels, and uh, yeah, even to you know gouge a tire would probably bankrupt me. <laughs> a colleague was driving a Rolls, and he's, I think his uh, partner, his dear wife, uh, scraped the wheels, and they swent, sent him a twenty thousand dollar bill. <laughs> yes, yeah, so um, is he still married? <laughs> well, he sent the bill back. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so it's uh, probably probably the way to go. I mean, yeah, love love conquers all. Paul, lovely to talk. Uh, thanks very much, and uh, we must keep in contact. We will, David. Once I've driven that uh, that Aston Martin, I'll let you know my impressions of it. Thank you very much. And that's Paul Morell, motoring journalist and uh, ex-marketing man of expertise, but also one that just has a wonderful sense of history and an enjoyment of history as will be typified by driving an Aston Martin. You're listening to Overdrive. So, what are the five best features of the Audi SQ2? Number one is style. The SQ2 style is edgy, geometric and certainly stands out. With a choice of nine exterior colours and two interior colour combinations, it's very appealing for the younger buyers. Number two, interior ambiance. Designed with two occupants in mind, there are comfortable front Nappa leather seats with heaters and contrasting stitching, good air conditioning and excellent Bang & Ufland sound system. Number three, performance. SQ2 comes with a 2-litre TFSI engine, a 7-speed S-Tronic DCT and the legendary Quattro all-wheel drive system. It will run from 0 to 100 kilometres in 4.9 seconds and top out at a govern 250 kilometres. Number four, driver engagement. Driving the SQ2 is simply a bundle of fun. It is nimble, quick, and compliment. Number five, price. Surprisingly, it's not that expensive at around 65300 plus usual costs, and it's actually very good value. I'm Brian Fraser. This is Overdrive across Australia. We have on the line Brian Smith, transport planner and former traffic engineer, knows many things, and and he has, of course, kept his eye on what COVID means to our travel. G'day, Brian. G'day, David. It is a big impact, obviously. Do you think we're looking at it closely enough, and what sort of things do you think are happening? Yeah, look, I think a few things, David. There's obviously, everyone would be aware, there's shutdowns have, have reduced the sort of public transport patronage and, and the numbers of vehicles driving around pretty substantially and there's an expectation that as we get back to normal things will get back to normal except that people are using cars a whole lot more than they used to 
and they're a little reluctant to use shared transport and public transport. And so there is some concern that in the longer term, uh, you know, people's travel behaviour may change to the worst and, and cause some congestion. But at the moment, David, uh, it's pretty easy to get around on the road. I had to actually drive into the city the other day. I've never driven into the city for years now um, to take my daughter for her shot. Uh, look, it was actually a smooth run. Um, I do say, too, about the less traffic on the road. There was some research from the ITS conference that showed that deliveries now are working much better because there's not so much traffic on the road. They've managed to get more deliveries done, and so the freight task is being assisted in some ways. The other one that is often mentioned, of course, is more people working from home, yet we tend to, and we have talked about that in general terms, almost in an all or nothing. It's people who are working from home that in the future may do it a couple of days a week. Yes. That's the important point, isn't it? Yes, that's true, David. I'm working on one project at the moment in Tasmania where uh, there's a lot of discussion about congestion along a, along a, um, a highway. And, of course, during school holidays, when traffic drops around 10% or thereabouts, there's a, a, a marked difference in the level of congestion. People, they estimate it to be much greater. It's only like 10 or so percent, yet it gives you a whole sense of um, more space on the road. And I think... We've had a whole lot more, I think, uh, a bigger reduction than that. And so, yes, it can make a difference, certainly different. I think also potentially people drive more quickly, and that's a bit of a concern. And I don't think it'll ever be back to normal. I think there is a lot of consideration of socioeconomic factors that may make a difference. I, I was talking to, a, a, in a panel conversation for the AITPM conference, general discussion with a few people. This young lady said that she'd just bought a house. And I said, what was your first decision? And she said, the room that I was going to work out of. Well, yes. And I think the, the point you make is, is quite a good one that, um, you know, if people do go back to state of the office two to three days a week, then there will be a reduction in traffic. And yes, people will make those choices based on how comfortable they are. I asked her what her second choice was. She said a social thing, living near the beach. I asked her what the third one was, and that was being able to ride a push bike to the shops. And so I said, where does journey to work come into it? And she said, oh, way down the list. Yeah. That's only one person and one example. Yet if that was in 5 or 10% of the population, then I think that's a major social economic shift. Mind you, though, David, I agree. Uh, mind you, though, I'm with child to get back to the office uh, at least a bit. I miss people. And, uh, you know, the, many people, I guess, would be experiencing the Groundhog Day of, of every day being the same, whether it's a Wednesday or a Sunday. You wake up at the same time, you're in the same space, you know, you're more or less doing the same thing. So I'm very keen to, to sort of get back and see people and be in the city. But again, not all or nothing. There may well be the time that even if you travel later in the day or don't necessarily just do the perceived nine to five, it's got flexibility. It's made us think much more about flexibility. Now, you said, what's it affected me? But Brian, I'm, I'm shattered. <laughs> and one of the reasons is this. I had a drive of the new Ionic 5. I can't talk about it. There's an embargo on drive impressions, but pictures of it are out. I had a drive of it, so I wanted to take it to see whether people reacted. But there's not enough people on the streets. And, Brian, all your transport planners 
have made local shopping streets totally against the car. And by the way, I support that. So everything's a bypass now. So it's very hard to find a shopping centre, or it's harder than it has been, where I could drive through and watch people's reaction. It's not vanity, I don't care what they think of me. I just wondered whether there was a measure of the significance of the car by whether it turned heads. And it's hard to find a place to do that. That's interesting, David, the the tragic impacts on the attention-seeking population. (laughs) Added to the (laughs) fact that most people have got their heads buried in a phone. Where else would you go, Brian? Well, of course, a standard thing would be to drive past a school. Or go go to the beach, yeah. And, of course, the schools are off, yeah. Now, the beaches seem to be open, but... And when I was a school kid, yeah, we were were extremely uh, strong consumers of passing cars, so... You know, particularly during the period of hey there charger, you know, where we would ah. irritate all of the charger owners. But yeah, it's a tragedy, David. Technical expertise and listening to my whinge. I appreciate that greatly. <laughs> You're very welcome, David. And that's Brian Smith, transport planner extraordinaire, but also a man who understands what it was like to be a kid and look for cars on the road and notice if one was different. And this has been Overdrive. My thanks to Christine Mulverhill, Paul Morell, Brian Smith, Rob Fraser and Paul Just for their help with this program. Overdrive is syndicated across Australia on the Community Radio Network. There's more information at drivenmedia.com.au including full interviews with the experts we've come into contact with or previous programs are available as podcasts on iTunes or Spotify. And there's our Facebook site, Overdrive City Driven Media. I'm David Brown. Thanks for listening.